Dwan in Jesus' name. Pleasure to be here. Feels a little more like McDowell than some places I've been. I like that you're a little closer. Sometimes I feel like I'm looking way off in the distance, and um, yeah, it just feels a little more at home. So it's good to be here tonight. Uh, I was going to do a quick survey. How many of y'all just really love February? Okay, there's a couple. Good. Um, normally, I think of February as just a month I have to get through to get to spring or a little closer to spring, and it's 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 a month I try just get through. And the other day, Sharia comes home, and uh, her school teacher wanted her to wear blue, and I think they had a blue day at school, but they had fun wearing blue. But often I get the idea of, you know, February is kind of being a blue month, maybe a little um, dreary and cold and all this stuff. But it doesn't have to be. It can be a great month, too, with the Lord's help. This evening, I feel what the Lord laid in my heart was the thought of discouragement and how to deal with discouragement. And I think it's something at some point in our life we all face. For some reason or another. So I want to just go through it. And I want to break it down into several parts. The first one I'd like to look at. Is what is the cause of discouragement. And I'm not going to flesh all this out. But we're going to look at the cause. We're going to recognize some of the effects of it. We're going to learn maybe to recognize it in others. And then hopefully finish on a positive note. Of how to deal with discouragement. So that's the goal. We'll see if how the Lord leads. The first cause that I would like to look at, we find in Luke chapter 5. And I labeled this one, unfulfilled expectations. So sometimes we have high hopes for something, and it just doesn't quite go how we planned it. So Luke 5, 1 to 5. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from land. And he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for the draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Every once in a while I read these stories and I like to picture myself there, kind of, you know, get a little bit of a scene, what's going on here. And I I picture Jesus, a lot of people are wanting to hear him, and I don't picture it, there was probably a hill there or something, I haven't looked at the geography, but he was getting pushed back, pushed back, and soon he's standing right beside the lake. And so he's looking around. There's a boat. He climbs into a fisherman's boat, and he says, push off a little bit from the land and let down your anchor. And, and Simon obediently does. Um, for whatever reason, he just obeyed Jesus and pushed off from land. And, and then as a thank you, Jesus says, okay, let's go fishing. And, and Simon Peter's like, we fished all night, and we didn't catch anything, and we're cleaning our nets for nothing. <laughs> and so... At that point, I believe Peter had the option of becoming discouraged. Or he may have been discouraged sitting there cleaning his nets and not having caught any fish. So each one of us, when we get to these different possibilities, you know, we have the choice, what are we going to do with it? Maybe there's a time, I was just thinking of times in my own life, you're thinking about purchasing a house possibly, and then someone comes and they give a higher offer. Or the person that you're going to buy the house off of accepts a lower offer than the one you gave. And you're like, you know, why is this happening, Lord? Or there's a young man and a young woman in a courtship relationship, and it just doesn't go as planned, and it falls apart. You know, unfulfilled expectations. Or it can happen with outreach. Uh, there's, you know, you hear about a mission field, you, you hear good stories coming back from this mission field, you're excited about it, you pick up your family and go, and then it doesn't go according to plan, or it doesn't seem like it's going according to plan, and, and you have the choice. Am I going to get discouraged? What am I going to do with it? So you get the point. Unfulfilled expectations. 
Hannah is another example of this. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to paraphrase the first verse. There was a man, Elkanah, or Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice them the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophani and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk, now Eli the priest sat upon the seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then will I give unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying, before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, or I take it maybe discouraged. And I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. So we kind of get the idea. She wanted a son for a long time. Not only that, but her husband's other wife, which was a mistake, was making fun of her and mocking her and trying to make her fret, it says. She was trying to get her to fret. So not only was she not able to have children, but someone was rubbing this directly in her face. And talk about discouraging. I, and this was happening year after year. This wasn't just one month. This just wasn't a couple days. She was facing this every single year. And I found that hard to believe. And that brings me to my next point is discouragement sometimes comes from lack of hope. Sometimes Maybe we just run out of hope. Let's turn. There's a short story in Second Kings. Second Kings six, one to five. And the sons of the prophet said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, under Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. And he said, Be content, I pray thee, and I and go with thy servant. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one was fell in a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried, saying, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So normally, when we have a situation like this and the axe falls in the water it's over we've lost an axe or we've lost the head of an axe so i'm going to stop at that point you know the rest of the story but at that point in time there the opportunity to become discouraged arises then if you go down that chapter a little further you get these verses and verse 13 and he said go and spy where he is now this was the king of syria talking what had happened was Elisha was telling the king of Israel everywhere the king of Syria was going to be. And he would go and wait for him here. And the king of Israel would go somewhere else. And he's like, how does he know this? And they said, well, I'll tell you what. Elisha tells the king of Israel what you say in your bedchamber. 
And so he's like, well, where's Elisha? Let's take care of him. And that's kind of the back setting for here. And he said, go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? I wonder if this is the same servant that lost his axe head earlier on. And it's just one thing after another. Now we're surrounded by a great host of people. It looks hopeless. What shall we do? There are times in our life, I think probably all of us have been there, we feel snowed under. We feel overwhelmed by the situation. Maybe it's a parent with a rebellious child or... Maybe it's a minor problem such as work or taxes or, you know, a tax deadline. We just feel snowed under. There's probably many examples you're thinking of maybe in your own life where you felt just overwhelmed. There was too much to do or uh, you didn't know how the situation was going to look at. It just looked really bleak. Which brings me to my next one. We're going to go back and hopefully answer some of these things. Unintentional personal failures. So I think it's kind of, it goes back to the, the guy with the axe. I don't think he meant to lose the axe. And I've been in that situation too. I just was working on my house, needed maybe like an air nailer or something, and I didn't want to go to Lowe's and buy one. And so I go to Brother Glenn, said, Brother Glenn, you know, can you borrow me your air nailer? And sure, you know, Glenn's, if you need to borrow something, Glenn's the guy to go to. And he's always willing to borrow but there's been a time or two that I've got some tools off of him and I've been working with them and they broke. So now I have a broke tool and Glenn has a nice new one. <laughs> and, and so you have these situations where unintentional personal failures, you don't mean to break it, but it just happens. And we can choose where we go with that. Then we get to one that we don't like to deal with, and I think that would be called intentional personal failures. So these are um, things that we do. We know the consequence. We know that it's not going to turn out good, but we go ahead and do it anyway, whether it's to fulfill our own flesh, whether it's to we thought it'd be fun. Um, there's numerous reasons why we have intentional personal failures. The example that, I, that came to my mind was David and Bathsheba. And we saw how that played out. So he knew better. And then he ended up having, in his mind, to try to cover his tracks. He ended up killing one of his most loyal soldiers. And then it ended up costing him the life of his son. And then it ended up causing the, the peace of Israel. Because in all the days of David, they didn't have peace after that because of his actions. All these things that he thought, well, this was going to turn out not so bad, it just spiraled down. He kept making choice after choice. And in Psalm 32, I'll just read two verses there, 32, 3, and 4. It talks, I think, a little bit about this time in his life. It says, When I kept silent, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. So hidden sin brings discouragement. Also, keeping silent about my failures can bring discouragement. And not only that, but it allows it to become deeper rooted. So I hide it. I don't tell anyone about it. And then what it ends up doing is I have another failure because I've never made it right or didn't help have someone help me through it. And it just leads one thing to another and it keeps going downhill. Back to Peter. If we turn to Matthew, Matthew 26, starting at verse 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out of the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also a Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. 
And after a while came unto him they that stood by, and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech bewaileth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I don't know if this is a place that I can uh, categorize as an intentional personal failure, but we all have to admit that Peter knew better. Jesus had warned him. Jesus said, this is what you're going to do. And he, he denied it. I'm not going to... I'm not. I'm going to go to the death with you, um, but it was still something. He knew better than to lie and to curse. They they said your speech betrayeth you. So he's like, well, I'm going to change that and start lying and cursing and swearing. So here we have instances where there's intentional failures, unintentional failures. The next one we get to is failures of those we trusted. And, and that's a hard one to deal with. And, and sometimes we might have been that person. Someone might have trusted us to do something and we failed them. I, I thought of the story of Samuel and Saul. Saul. Samuel had high expectations for Saul, and Saul started out really good. And God had high expectations for Saul. And... It says, and I don't understand this verse, but it said that it repented the Lord that he had made Saul king. And, and so he let down not only Samuel, but he let down God also. And that, that's the case in our lives when we have personal failures. But just remember that our personal failures also affect the lives of those around us too. It was said, if being hurt by the church causes you to lose your faith in God, then your faith was in people, not God. And I thought, hmm, that's a good good thought. And I think too often we put our faith in people and we don't put it in God. And then when that person lets us down, we thought, well, that's God letting me down. God's not going to let you down. That's the blessed part of being a Christian. People let you down. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. There's also a story. The devil's tool sale. It was announced that the devil was going out of business and would offer all the tools for sale, whoever would pay his price. On the night of the sale, they were all attractively displayed. A bad-looking lot they were. Malice, hatred, envy, jealousy, sensuality, deceit, and all other implements of evil were spread out, each marked with its price. Apart from the rest lay a harmless-looking wedge-shaped tool, much worn and priced higher than the others. Someone asked the devil what it was. That's discouragement, was the reply. Well, why do you have such a high price on it? Because, replied the devil, it is more useful to me than the, uh, any of the others. I can pry open and get inside a man's conscience with that when I could not get near him with any of my other tools. When once inside, I can use him in whatever way suits me best. It is so much worn because I use it with nearly everybody as very few people yet know it belongs to me. It hardly... It hardly needed to be added that the devil's price for discouragement was so high that it was never sold. He is still using it. And that was a sobering story for me. Because often we think of, well, discouragement is just something we all have. And it comes in life. There's things that are going to discourage us. But what do we do with that discouragement? I don't think, the devil, or I don't think God ever brings discouragement into our life. This is a trick of the devil to bring us down, to bring others down. So how do we recognize the signs of discouragement in my life and the lives of others? So in our own life, I don't want to dwell on this area. I just have maybe one paragraph on our own lives because I think we're inherently good at seeing our, looking at ourselves and taking good care of ourselves. And, and we know when we're not feeling good. We know when we're feeling down. Um, the problem with discouragement in my own life is not only that we recognize it and its symptoms, but that there's the temptation to dwell on it. I think that's the biggest danger of discouragement in my own life. I think the more important area that we have to look at is signs in other people's life so we can help them get over it. And, well, we'll get to that a little later, um, how to help them get over it. But signs in other people's life, this is really important to me. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of weakness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. 
Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. So we have a responsibility to ourselves. We need to bear our own burdens. But we also have to bear one another's burdens. And that's the blessing of being part of a church group. If we look back, let's go back to Samuel. And we'll look at some of the signs of discouragement in Hannah's life. Verse 7, in the end part of verse 7, it says, Therefore she, she wept and did not eat. And I think that's a, a, a sure sign of discouragement, is people that are discouraged tend to be a little more emotional, um, maybe a little more irritable. And then if discouragement has really got a hold of them, it tends to take one's appetite. It says, I don't feel like eating. Or... Maybe in my case, I'd tend to eat more. I'm not sure. There are certain people's emotions. Um, it affects them one way or the other. If, if I get stressed or something, I tend to eat more. So different people are affected different ways. But th there were signs. She was weeping. She was crying. She, she was obviously not doing real great. Then in verse 8, Elkanah asked Hannah, Why weepest thou? And so I also thought about this. Often our spouse is probably the first one to realize that we're discouraged because they're with us all the time. I can look pretty upbeat on a Sunday morning and maybe a Wednesday night. But if I have to try to look upbeat seven days a week, you know, eventually my wife's going to catch on if there's something up or vice versa. You know, we can we can feel out each other and and, you know, I can tell if she's not doing real good and she can tell if I'm not doing real good. And I think it's important to have a close marriage relationship because that way some of these problems don't have to come to church. She can say, well, what are you dealing with? And pray with me and we could read scripture together and we can get over it before anyone realizes that I was even feeling down. And so I think your spouse is really important in this area if you're married um, to help you get over some of these things. If you don't help one another, then hopefully someone in the church is there to help you. But we have Eli, who is here watching also. Okay, and he was sitting in the corner. He's watching this all take place. He recognized the signs, or so he thought, right? And he said, why are you drunken? Have you had too much to drink? And that's also a, a, a temptation of ours. We think we got the problem figured out. And we come to them with the answers, and they're like, no, that's not what it was. And that's how Eli approached, and I think it was a good example to me. Don't come to a brother or sister like, here's the fix, or get over it. Come to them and say, how can I encourage you? What are you dealing with? Is there anything I can help to, to help it along? And not say, okay, you need to get over this, or you come with a predetermined uh, fix. And, yeah. So then I would like to look at wrong responses to discouragement. I don't, I don't think the initial feeling of discouragement is necessarily wrong, but I think where it turns wrong is when we deal with it wrong. And I think one of the biggest things that comes from discouragement that I saw was probably bitterness. It allows that root of bitterness to grow in our life if it's not dealt with. And I found a list of these roots and, and effects, and I would like you just to think about, don't think about someone else, but just think about your own life. And I'm going to read this list here in a little bit and just think, hmm, do I have bitterness in my life? Is this something I could grow in? You know, I didn't think I was a bitter person, and I still don't think I was bitter, but I think it got a lot closer to being some bitterness than I initially saw when I read this list. Hebrews 12:14 to 17, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright.
For ye know how that afterward, when he had inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repenting, though he sought it carefully with tears. You have chalk here? Maybe I'll draw this. I don't know where I should draw it so everyone can see. I'll go over here. So it's been said that bitterness is a root. But, and we've looked at like the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of other, so I would like to look at the fruits. I call them the fruits of bitterness. So I'm going to draw a tree. So down here are the roots. There's the ground. And this tree has, unfortunately, a bunch of branches. communication, as it commonly does, 
the parties become suspicious of each other. Small offenses that would have been dismissed with, he didn't mean anything by that. I've done it myself a hundred times. Or, oh, he just is having a bad day kind of thought are interpreted with less charitable motives. Then it leads to just outright intolerance. Similar, similarly, bitterness disposes us to not, but not put up with our offenders' non-sinful behavior. Resentment makes mountains out of molehills. Then it leads to hypersensitivity. Treating a pinprick as though it were a knife through one's heart may likewise be in indicative of a bitter spirit. Proud individuals are especially prone to fall into this snare. You haven't offended any old person. You've offended me, and my anger is not easily appeased. We have impatience. Patience involves being able to keep a biblical perspective about our troubles by not magnifying a tolerable trial so that it appears to our minds as an intolerable one. Bitterness causes us to lose this <coughs> biblical perspective. It magnifies forgivable offenses so that they seem unforgivable in our minds. It tempts us to resort to unbiblical means of delivering ourselves from the trial rather than waiting on God to work through our peacemaking attempts to resolve the conflict biblically. Then there's disrespect. If the person on whom we are bitter is an authority figure, our contempt for that person will eventually make its way out of our hearts and into our mouths in the form of irreverence. Which then leads to rebellion against authority. ultimately depleted of our supplies of energy and physically exhausted. Our strength would be gone from our bodies, and the same principle holds true of an emotional level. It requires vast amount of emotional energy to maintain a grudge. After several laps around the unforgiveness track, several days of bitterness, most of us will have depleted, zapped our emotional energy and become emotionally exhausted or depressed. Remembering with great details the nature of the offense, bitterness eulogizes the particulars. It is actually possible by replaying the offense over and over again in our minds to fabricate imaginary details into the event, details that never actually happened. And I've seen that happen over and over again in people that really struggle with details. It's just they, they bring the failure of another brother in their mind and they run it over and over again. And all of a sudden, their mind starts fabricating things that didn't even actually happen. And they, they come accusing, and they're like, brother, that, that, wasn't even, that didn't even happen. So let's guard against, when I read over this list, you know, some of these things struck home. And with the Lord's help, uh, I've overcome. Unfortunately, when we are discouraged, it is really easy to allow it to grow into bitterness. And the other thing is, we start the blame game if we're not careful. And normally the first being 
to get the blame is God. You know, God, you didn't really care about me like you said you do. You wouldn't allowed me to get sick. You wouldn't allowed me to um, lose that loved one. You know, these are big things in our lives. You, If you really cared about my struggle, um, you would have given me a better job or made my living easier. And we tend to, if we're not careful, blame God for these, which leads us then to just giving up. Because without God, where's your hope at? So you just give up. If not dealt with, discouragement can eventually lead us just to plain give up, both spiritually and physically. So let's look at how to deal with discouragement. The first thing I would like to look at is far too often we start, we go to the last, or we go to the last place we turn, should be the first place we turn, and that's God. So God far too often becomes our last resort. I just can't do it on my own, so I'm going to turn to God. They tend to turn to God in their darkest hour when we should be turning to him every hour. Let's go look at Peter again. There's just one little phrase I want to look at. You don't have to turn there. But Peter said, Nevertheless, at thy, thy will, word I will. And in essence, he was saying, Not my will, but thine be done. And I think that's a statement we have to use all the time with God. Not my will, but thine be done. And then God works out the details. It was once noted, if you are continuing on your own strength, I am not surprised at your discouragement. But he that keepeth Israel neither slumbereth nor sleepeth. We ought to be humbled, yes, humbled to dust, but never discouraged. Sometimes we, we use the term discouraged for disappointment. I think there's a difference there. You know, I don't think we should dwell on our discouragement. But sometimes we use the term rather loosely. But I think discourage is like a deeper problem, something we've dwelt with, something that's got a hold of us, something that's dragging us down. And, and that's not from God. And we're not relying on God when we get to that point. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So Peter later went on after this fishing point. He denied Jesus. And you would think this, would, this was probably the lowest point in his life. And he had the option just to give up, throw in the towel. But he didn't. He, he trusted in Jesus. And we have a, a nice story, but I think it frustrated uh, Peter a little bit. But if you turn to John 21. Verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And he saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said unto them, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. And he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. Another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. I wonder if there was any significance in Jesus asking him three times. Did it have anything to do with him denying him three times earlier? And then he came to him and said, Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? And Peter, was get, he was getting grieved. God, you know that I love you. And he kept asking him. But Peter chose to move on past his failure. And I'm sure he did the right things because we see the rest of his life. He asked for forgiveness. He took the steps for repentance and he moved on he didn't allow that discouragement to pull him down also Hannah if you go back to 1 Samuel 1 verse 3 it said that they went up to that city year after year and this is the first account of that so I wonder and I don't have any proof of this but was this the first time that Hannah really poured out her heart to God or had she been pouring her heart out to God year after year I don't know but part of me wonders if this wasn't the first time that she was just desperate and she just poured, laid her heart out. She'll, I'll do anything. Matter of fact, I'll give you my son. As soon as he's old enough, he can be yours. And then God took her up on it. 
And, you know, I think I've already said it, but we wait till we're just really down and then we're like, God, we need you. We'll do anything. But I think we need to approach God the first time like that. God, I'm here. I'll do anything. As we mature spiritually, it becomes easier to take God's leading the first time. So if if you go to, I'm not, I didn't write it down in my notes, but somewhere in John, they went fishing again. After uh, Peter denied Jesus, he said, and Jesus had died on the cross, and he was he was raised. They'd already seen him once, and Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other guy said, well, we're going to go with you. And they had a very similar experience to a few years prior. They went out, fished all night, didn't catch any fish. And then Jesus was there on the shore, and he said, cast your net on the right side of the boat. So obviously they're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. And he said, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And Peter didn't even ask any questions. He just did it. And immediately the net was filled with fish. So he was growing. He was maturing. I, I think that's the way I am in my life. I I was like, I have to get whacked upside the head a couple times, and then I slowly get the point, oh, that's what you're trying to tell me. Where do we go when things seem hopeless or circumstances fly out of control? 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. This is when the city was surrounded. And he said, on, he answered, fear not, he was talking to his servant, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Sometimes I wish that God would open our eyes and we could see our protection. I was driving down the road the other day and not paying as much attention. I had some guardian angels with me. And I didn't see them personally, but I know they were there. And, you know, if God would open our eyes, I think we would see angels around us here tonight. We have that protection. We have his spirit. And it's a blessed thought that we have someone keeping us safe, someone always by our side, and he's there to help us no matter what the situation. In Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 31, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Is it God that justifieth? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who is also making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this was a thought that just came to me, but oftentimes my problems look a lot worse to me than they are in reality. Here it's saying, we are counted as sheep to the slaughter and we're killed all day long. None of us here are facing physical persecution where people are out to kill us yet. It might be coming, but it says even if that's the case, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. When we are mocked by our adversaries, we are more than conquerors. When we fail and ask for forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Woodrow Wilson says, I would a great deal rather lose in a cause that I know someday will triumph than triumph in a cause that I know will someday lose. And I thought that's true. You know, we might feel like maybe Satan's winning. Maybe he's got us down. Maybe he's going to kill us. Maybe, and we might feel like we're losing the battle. But in reality, we know who wins. We got, we can read the end of the book. You know, there was a boy that said, he, all, he always liked to read the end of the book because he found out what happened. And, and if we read the end of the book, we know who wins. We win if we follow Christ and we're on his side. Luke 5, more fishing stories. I like fishing. I don't know if you've picked that up yet. 
When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. This is Luke 5, verse 6. And the net brake, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were on the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, of the draught of fish which had, they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ship to land, they forsook all and followed him. And I think that should be our life too. We need to forsake all and follow him. And then I don't think as much discouragement will arrive because so, so much of my discouragement is based on my everyday life, my business, my job, my taxes, you know, all this stuff that can bring about. But serving the Lord, it's just such a blessing. It doesn't bring discouragement, generally speaking. And if it does, he's faithful to help us overcome that. And also, when we realize the work that he's done in our life, I think we have to properly praise him, express the awe that Peter did, and fall down before him. And, and the more I read the Bible, the more inadequate I feel, the more humbled I am. When The more I understand God, the littler I feel. You know, I, I was studying the other day, and I'm like, I wrote down a note in my Bible, and I'm like, that doesn't seem right. Or I wrote down, I said, you know, I was saying when I stand before God on Judgment Day, and I'm like, am I going to stand before him or am I going to be fat, flat in my face? You know, how is this going to work out? Because when I'm before an almighty God, all of a sudden all those things, those gray areas, those places in my life that I thought I justified, it'll all become very evident. And it's really evident now, but when you're standing before a holy and almighty God, it, you're just going to feel really sinful. And we are without the shed blood of Jesus. So what do we do when we have these unintentional personal failures? The majority of the time, we don't have Elisha with us to recover the part or to miraculously heal it. And, and sometimes God does do miracles and we find something that we lost of a neighbor's or it, it shows back up. But we have Lowe's, we have Home Depot or whatever it is. If it's possible on an unintentional personal failure, the right thing to do, obviously, is make it right. Say, I'm sorry. Replace it if you can. Um, it seems to me like the more antique the china, the easier it is for me to break. <laughs> the more likely it is for me to break. I try to stay away from anything antique that's not replaceable. And then what about intentional personal failures? If we go to Psalm 32, just one verse there. It says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. And I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my spirit. So when we have an intentional personal failure, start the healing process right. Acknowledge our sin, and don't try to make it look good. Who was it the other day that said this? I think it was John Slavaugh. He said, sometimes in confessing our faults, or maybe he was saying even confessing pride, we do it in a proud manner. We make ourselves look as good as possible while making a confession. And that's that's starting off in the wrong way. Don't make it look any better than it was. It probably wasn't look it didn't probably look real great. Don't make it try look good. If you're confessing a failure, just confess it. And then we need to move ahead in the spirit of humility and pray for healing not only for ourselves, but also for the ones that we've offended. And then confess our faults one to another. It said that David here confessed his sin to God, but oftentimes our sin affects other people. And I think we have to go the extra step. And a lot of times it's healing in our own life to make that confession to other people. It gets it out in the open. And then you have brothers that are willing to support you and say, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to have your back and you can move on to victory a lot easier if you do it right. Proper confession promotes healing, and so does prayer. So let's not let our discouragement turn into the tool of the devil. The problem is discouragement can be almost as contagious as encouragement. But let's heed on the other side. Let's encourage one another. Let's lift up each other. In Hebrews 12, 13, 
or Hebrews 12:11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And I got the idea of the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. Like, I got a picture of a guy looking like this. You know, and that seems like a discouraged man to me. But it says, lift up his hands and straighten up your knees and then walk down a road that's not filled with potholes and different stuff, temptations and stuff. Get on the right path and, and then follow peace with all men and build up one another. And, you know, sometimes what we deem as discouraging might be a little chastening of the Lord. It might be God dealing with an area of my life and it doesn't feel real good. No, it says, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. But afterwards, the fruit that it bears, the pruning, you know, it kind of hurts when God takes out that thing in my life that I didn't need. But then afterwards, the fruit that comes from it is a blessing. So our focus and our outlook, it needs to be on God. Philippians 3 one or two verses here. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, which I think is very important, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Something I was thinking about when I was sitting at my desk. If I put my hand like right here, my hand seems really big. But if I look past my hand and I look at the surrounding area, all of a sudden, my hand doesn't seem that big in comparison to what's out there. And oftentimes, that's what it is with our problems. It's right here. It's facing us right in the face. And we're looking, we're staring at the problem, so it seems really big. But then if we look past it and we see God, and we see his power, and he, we see his working in our lives, all of a sudden, that problem becomes a lot smaller because we have an almighty God there to help us with it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14-18. <clears throat> now we exhort you brethren warn them that are unruly comfort the feeble minded support the weak be patient toward all men see that none of you render evil for evil unto any man but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men rejoice evermore Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. It's really hard to stay discouraged when we're busy encouraging one another. If you're feeling down, maybe make it a priority to go see if you can lift someone else's spirits up, and a good chance are that your spirits will be lifted up too. May we take the time to say a word of encouragement in the month of February and other months, and... May we help our brothers and sisters to a closer walk with God. God bless you.